Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you at the very beginning, which is not rare, hopefully. Um, uh, I'm going to tell you a story about one of the lowest points in my life as far as attending a church service. Um, I went with my buddy Dave to this revival that was happening in the western part of the state. And my buddy Dave uh, has this really incredible testimony. He was a former drug dealer and then became, you know, thrown in prison, became a believer in prison, and then he likes to share his story. And so he was invited to this church to share his testimony. And so he says, you know, Ben, I would like, love, love for you to come with me and, and, you know, hear this testimony and, you know, just be a part of the church service. Some of those people I haven't seen in years. And so I was like, absolutely, I'll go. And so uh, I asked him, Dave, where do you want me to sit since you're up there sharing? He goes, sit on, on the front row, and I'll join you when I'm done with my testimony. So he gets up, and he shares his testimony, and then he sits down. And as I notice, there's a big choir up for a revival, um, you know, a revival week, and there's a big choir that's singing. And there was this one guy in the choir that had a very distinct voice. And I feel like there's always that guy, you know, right? He just had this real loud sort of bassy out of tune voice, and I was like, man, that guy's like, he's so loud and so like distracting, and Dave's like, man, shut up, you know, he's nudging me, and I'm like, I, I just can't get over it, it's just so obvious, and, um, and so the sermon gets up, the pastor gets up, and he preaches, and then um, right as there's an invitation, um, which was very drawn out, the choir kind of gets down, and that dude sits right next to me. And then we do just as I am, you know, the 12 line stanzas of that, and he's sitting right next to me, and he is singing with his very loud, out-of-tune voice right next to me. So much more, I feel like my bones are vibrating. I'm just like, I'm, and I, I began to start to laugh, and I cannot help myself. And I'm sorry if you're judging me You've done it before, I promise. But I'm sitting there laughing, and Dave's going, stop, man, you've got to stop. And then I can't stop. I'm, like, looking down. I'm holding the hymnal close to my face. And, and Dave starts to laugh. And then he can't stop. And then we notice there's people coming up front, and we're, sti- we're laughing while people are coming. It's horrible. And Dave says, I know what we can do. We can go to the altar. (laughs) And that is what we did. (laughs) So we went up front, and we knelt at different places, and we're up there, and all people can see is the back of us. We're we're just doing this. And I'm assuming everyone in the group thought, man, these guys are really broken over their sin. That is not what was happening at all. We were broken over sin after from what we just did in the church but that is what we did. So at first, you would say, man, it looks like on the outskirts, if you're sitting in the back row, man, these guys have pure motives. They love God. Um, and we do love God. But in that moment, that was a low moment for us. Our motives were not pure. And I tell you that crazy story to kind of explain to you how motives matter to God. Motives matter to God. And motives are the sin beneath the sin. Motives are the things that we don't want to look at often. Uh, Because motives explain or expose what is really in our hearts. 
And this is important to recognize because most of the time when you and I fight sin in our lives, we fight what is obvious or what is on the surface. Things like lust, things like gossip, things like worry, things like greed, just to name a few. But how often do we examine not just what's on the surface, but what's underneath the surface? How often do we ask ourselves or think about the motive of why we do what we do? And the text this morning is going to expose and show us how God cares about our motives. In fact, we're going to find that impure motivation is actually the first Noteworthy sin that, was, that uh, caused corruption in the early church. And so what, here's what you have at the end of Acts 4. Acts 4, we see this amazing story of a church that is united in the gospel. Even their lives are being threatened for standing up for Jesus. And at the end of Acts 4, we see this church that in the face of tremendous opposition, they're still united. And we'll pick up in verse 34, just to have some context of Acts 4. It says, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought them the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it distributed to each one as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so we have these examples of grace among the church that so much that people gave so that others wouldn't go without. And we even see one incredible example of a man named Barnabas who was willing to sell a field and give the money away. So that another believer wouldn't go without. So we have this wonderful example of grace and generosity. And it seems as if everything is somewhat perfect in the life of the church. But Acts chapter 5, it reminds us that we still live in a fallen world. And how something as beautiful as this can be distorted by sin and the need to steal glory that belongs to God. So we pick up in Acts chapter 5 verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to Keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So here you have a husband and wife. They have this piece of property. It's a good thing. They sell it. However, we're told that in verse 2, that according to him and his wife, they held back some of the proceeds and only brought a portion of it to the disciples. So what's the problem here? Was it the amount that they gave? No, it wasn't the amount that they gave. That's not why Peter addresses them and says that they're 
um, under the influence of Satan. That's not why he does that. Was it that they only gave some of it? That's not it either. It's not necessarily the issue at all. Verse 4 tells us the issue. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? Peter's words captured the heart of the issue. The issue wasn't about the amount they gave or the amount they held back. Rather, it was about the deception of their hearts. They wanted the church to believe they were like Barnabas. They wanted the church to believe that they were more generous than they actually were. And that is what was telling of their motive. This text is obvious that their motive wasn't to care for those in need. Rather, their motive was receiving the praise of men. And for this reason, Peter makes this very strong statement. He says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, there is a fair debate among scholars and Bible commentators about whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were actually believers. Most commentators believe that they were. Uh, New believers, perhaps, that just fell into sin in the early church. I would say we're not really sure. Um, We do see that Peter, again, given the supernatural ability to know it was in their hearts, he attributed to the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Uh, We can also recognize that these people would have made remarkable stance just to identify themselves with the early church, knowing their lives would be threatened to identify themselves with Jesus. So they would have been in that camp. They would have been... Uh, made tremendous sacrifices just to be identified with this body. So it is a likelihood that they could be believers. Either way, whether they're believers or not, I do not believe what Peter says, his statement of Satan filling your heart means that Satan somehow possessed them. Um, We see demon possession happen in the New Testament. I do believe it is possible today. But believers must not fear demon possession. A believer cannot be possessed by a demon. You have it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you are, oh, uh, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 5, verse 18, he says, we know that who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. 1 Peter 1, verse 5, by God's power, we're being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to reveal it in the last time. We're being guarded. The Spirit of God guards us. He seals us until the day we receive our inheritance. The God who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. The only one cannot touch us. So a believer cannot be possessed by Satan. So what does Peter mean when he makes this statement? What is Peter saying? Well, I think Peter, what Peter is saying here is something very similar to what Jesus said to Peter. When Jesus told the disciples that he was predicting his death, that he would soon die on the cross. This is what is recorded in Matthew 18, verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him. That's a mistake, right? Saying, 
Far be it from you, Lord, that this shall happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, this is what Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. That's not a compliment. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, is Jesus saying that Peter is literally Satan or that Satan has possessed Peter? No. Rather, he's saying that Peter was speaking as he was being tempted by Satan. And perhaps that is what Peter is saying to Ananias and Sapphira. He's saying that their temptation came from Satan. What does Satan love to do? He loves to lie against the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. He's the deceiver. He's the liar. And I say this because many of us are confused about how Satan works. And I think many of us are confused about how Satan works because many of us are confused about how God works. And if you look at God like he's a lifeguard and Satan is some sort of shark that comes and attacks people without God looking, right? As if God is going, oh, I lost that one or I was caught by surprise that I didn't see that one coming. God is not a lifeguard. He is God. He controls the waves, the land, the people, and the sharks. God's not a lifeguard. We don't need to see him in that way. And I think partly in Southern culture, there's this yin and yang view of God and Satan, like it's the red team and the blue team, as if Satan is some perfect opposite or un- imperfect opposite of God. And that's not Satan. God, Satan is not the opposite of God. He's the perversion of God. He is the counterfeit of God. And here's what I mean by that. Satan does not have the attributes of God. God is omnipresent. He can be all places at all times. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Satan is not um, this other power that's almost identical to God. It's not that way. God is all-powerful. He reigns over all things. He is present in all places at all times. That is not an attribute that belongs to Satan. That is an attribute that belongs only to God. As a matter of fact, it is unlikely that any of us has been directly tempted by Satan himself. Most of the time when we're tempted, it's by his demonic forces. Because Satan is not omnipresent. And if Satan or a demon wants to tempt you or me... It can only happen through God's sovereign permission, according to the book of Job. And honestly, most of the time we think of Satan's work, we often don't think of the spiritual destruction that takes place. Rather, we think of the physical or the paranormal. When I think about um, the way I was growing up, the way we talked about Satan was through events on the calendar year. Like Halloween. I remember being a part of my Christian school that I first went to when I was a kid, and we had to come down front and pledge that we would not celebrate Halloween because that was Satan's Christmas, right? If you say the certain words, and demon forces will come out, and it's sort of this paranormal view of Satan. Or rock and roll music. You play the certain beat that will summon all the demons, and then they can come and Take over your house. You play the Beatles album backwards. You'll get the satanic messages that can control your mind. 
as if that's how Satan works. Or in the back, this is where the physical part of it is, of how we believe Satan works. Or in the back of the church, if the soundboard messes up, what do we always say? Well, the devil doesn't want us to move forward to say, you know. The pastor's car breaks down. See, Satan was trying to stop us, but the car started back up. And we often hear those kind of phrases when we think about Satan. Let me just remind you, Satan's not a five-year-old. He's not running around playing pranks on the pastor's car. He's not back there trying to mess with the media team. I think he's a little bit more clever than that, okay? Can we agree that he's not five years old? Perhaps he's been around longer and he knows a little bit better tactics, like maybe infusing false doctrine in the church, maybe us having a false understanding of the gospel, maybe us thinking that we are more righteous than we actually are, maybe us diminishing sin in our lives, maybe tempting our motives. And that's exactly what he does here. That's why First Peter talks about he is like a roaring lion, he seeks to destroy us. How does he seek to destroy us? Well, not through pranks, but through lies, through our pride, through our motive. And this is what we see in this passage. What's the motive that Satan tempts Ananias and Sapphira? It's their motive of seeking the praise of men. Satan wants them to try and steal glory that belongs to God. And this is what happens here in the text. This is why Ananias and Sapphira are unfortunate yet helpful examples of how Satan seeks to destroy us. Notice how the motive of their hearts of seeing the praise of men only lead to more sin. From there they lie. From there they deceive others. From there they even display some greed from this impure motive that we see. And each time we lie... There is a sin beneath the sin of lying. And I want, I want us to see that this morning. Each time we lie, we're trying to hide an idol. Think for a moment of why you lie. If you're sitting there thinking you don't lie, you just did, all right? Because when we, when we lie, we exaggerate in a way that we want someone to think we're something that we're not. We do this because we... we crave the approval of man more than we do the approval of God. And this is why I believe that liars can't have true friends because what happens is that people fall in love with the false version of who you are, not the real you. For the liar, the version that you portray isn't the real you because no one knows the real you if you're always lying. And this happens due to ungodly motives. So the sin beneath the sin is our ungodly motives. It's the idolatry of wanting the approval of man more than the approval of God. And this is why it's so messed up. And this is why it's so important to find the sin beneath the sin. Because what's on the surface is lying. But we can't kill uh, that sin unless we find the sin beneath the sin. We can kill what is on the surface only if we kill the sin beneath the sin. And this is where where Satan loves to fool us. And this is why it's so dangerous to be the legalistic person who likes to look at the sin that's only on the surface because they're not hard to identify or destroy. But this is why we shouldn't be so quick to say that we're not legalistic. 
Because true repentance is finding the sin beneath the sin. It's finding and warring against the sin beneath the sin. And what happens when we truly repent, we finally realize that God actually loves us in spite of who we are. We find that God loves us even though we're messed up. And guess what else happens? We find that other believers will love us too in spite of who we are. And so as we begin to kill the sin beneath the sin, as we begin, okay, why do I lie? Well, I lie because I love the approval of man. So I need to fight the, the sin of idolatry in my heart to love the approval of man that much to cause me to lie. And then when we do that, we begin to fight that sin. We realize we're not lying as much as we used to because we're killing this idol in our heart. And then from that, we go, I'm just going to be honest about who I really am. And then when we're honest about who we really are, we recognize that we are loved by a gracious Savior who sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place. And we're fully accepted by a loving father who sent his son in our place. And then from that, we recognize that, man, I can be myself around other believers. And other believers love me too, even though I messed up. That's the beauty of the gospel. But what Satan loves to do is he likes to tell us, no, it's not a big deal. It's a small issue. It's a small issue in your heart. It's not not a big deal. It's not really a big sin issue at all. And if you look at this text, it's very clear. This seems like a small thing. We're just going to give a portion of our money and hide the rest, but we're going to act like we're giving the full amount. doesn't seem like a big deal, but it absolutely is in the eyes of God. And we see it in verse 5 through 10, what happens next. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last breath. And great fear came upon all those who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and certain uh, and carried him out and buried him after an interval of about three hours his wife came in knowing what had happened and peter said to her tell me whether you sold the land for so much and she said yes for so much peter said to her how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the lord Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last breath. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, I want you to see this because this is how serious God takes this sin. And it's not as Peter pronounced death on Ananias or Sapphira. He simply confronted them with their sin. And that is what caused them to die. Obviously, this is an act of God that both Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. This is a rare situation where God would do this in the church age. And even today, this would be a rare situation. But it's how serious God takes sin. God does this because he hates sin and he loves sin his church. And God sovereignly used this sin to show the church their desperate need to be honest with God. Because the reality is this, God did not need their sacrifice to to provide for his people. God only wanted their obedience. 
I mean, think about it. All they had to do, it's not like Peter is saying they, they have to do this gift. It's not like they have to provide this way. No, all they would have to do is come forward and say, Peter, we sold our land. We decided to keep a percentage of it to ourselves and then give some of it to the church. That's all they would have to do. That would have been fine. But no, they wanted the appearance of radical generosity. And this is where spiritual deception is so dangerous. And the first now recorded burial in the early church was that of a hypocrite. How tragic. This is how these people would be known. And so hopefully the story of Ananias and Sapphira causes us to urgently examine our hearts and recognize that God absolutely cares about our motives. A couple of things when I'm confronted with this truth. It's rare that our motives are 100% pure, if we're honest. Like, I would love to tell you that every Sunday I get up here and preach, and every sermon is 100% of the sermon is for the glory of God. No. I I would love to tell you that's 100% my motive. It's not. 100% of my motive. There's a big part of me that wants people to think, man, he's an incredible speaker. There's a big part of me that thinks, and I hope that quote was tweeted, and maybe retweeted, and maybe a well-known pastor would find it and see that I'm pretty smart. Maybe somebody would think I'm, man, really funny, right? And even no redheads could be that funny. That guy's hilarious. Maybe I would think that there's something I've done to cause the church to grow. Man, oh, the reason why this church is growing is because that guy is there. There's a part of me in every sermon that thinks that way. And so this text, though, urges me to find the sin beneath the sin. This text urges me to... Get back to desiring God's glory over my own. And so here's something else that the text does. Is it not only teaches us that, but it teaches us about fearing the Lord. Look at verse 11. It says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. We see this twice in this text, these 11 verses that fear came upon everyone. Now, of course, this is what happened. If you see someone who drops dead because they had pure motives, you're going to be confessing sin really quickly, right? You'll be like, ah, I've, I think I've got some things I want to bring forward and talk about. So, of course, this happens, but is this the way that we're to fear God? Okay, I'm, I'm afraid that God is going to be vindictive toward me if I don't confess my sin. I'm afraid that I don't get that job promotion, or I'm afraid I'm getting a car wreck later. I'm afraid that something's going to happen to my children if, if I'm not confessing sin. Is that the way that God wants us to think about our sin? How is it that we rightly fear the Lord? We're told this in 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So how is it that we fear rightly? Well, oftentimes when we, when we see in fear, uh, when God commands us to fear throughout Scripture, it's always related to our holiness and our, us seeing Him as holy and us seeing ourselves as not holy. 
but then a desire that follows for us to grow in holiness before God. Proverbs 18, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Paul captures the same idea in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always, what's the word? Obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but as much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does this mean to fear God in this way? Does this mean that we have to earn it, some fear and trembling, I have to work out my salvation? Does it mean I can lose it if I don't work hard enough? Well, to understand this verse, we have to even see the next verse, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what does it mean this morning for us to work out our salvation with fear? Paul is saying that it is recognizing where our sanctification comes from, where, the, where our growth in the gospel comes from. Philippians chapter 1, the verse 11 verses are all about what Jesus has done, that Jesus Christ died as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. It's all about us revering Christ. And then from revering Christ, we then work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who does the work in us. It's recognizing that we are in the hands of a sovereign God. And then us living on in this reverent fear before God. And so to fear God, it means that we revere him. And here in the text, in, in, in Acts chapter 5, they, they would revere God because they recognize God takes sin seriously. God takes holiness seriously. And so revering God in this way, it, it draws us to a willful submission to him and then causes us to live our lives in response to that truth. As a kid growing up in high school, I, I had a, a massive trouble paying attention, as you can imagine. I had multiple teachers that I could just, I could just tune them out so easily. It was like the teachers from Peanuts. You know, I couldn't hear anything. And um, there was this one teacher that I remember very well. And I've told this story before, but it taught me about how fearing God works. It was this teacher I had named Mr. Smith, and he looked like a Will Ferrell character. He was this giant, six foot five, with a top guy with a Tom Selleck mustache, and he kind of looked like the brawny paper towel guy. He just looked like a giant lumberjack. And he looked at you with these crazy eyes. And he could, it was like he could look through you. And I remember when he would, um, he was my basketball coach, and he would wear these jack, like high knee socks, the blue stripe around them, and he was really short, umbro shorts and these hairy legs, and somehow he still looked like super manly and scary. Like, no, like he's the like scariest guy that could wear umbro shorts. But that's how he was. I remember in class, he would... He would have this like thundering voice. I mean, when I when we was playing basketball on the sidelines, he would always scream, Ben, what are you doing? And it would just, it would just, my, my hair would stand up on my back. You know, when I was a teenager, I had like three pieces of hair on my back. But that's, 
And it would just scare me. And then in class sometimes, if he didn't get the class attention, he had his trumpet. And he didn't even know how to play trumpet. He would just pull it out and just go, and just blow, and just get everybody's attention. And I would listen to everything that he did. Part of it was his physical appearance. Part of it was his voice. But another part of it was I knew he really loved us. And I also saw him as a husband, and I also saw him as a father. And how did I live in response to him? Well, I knew that he wasn't just a teacher that was just going to go over a curriculum and say, we're class dismissed. He was a teacher because he really wanted to impact the students' lives. He really wanted to impact my life. I remember this one class period that I was talking in the class, and he walked me outside, and he says, Ben, it feels like you're in your own little world in there. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I just like, I remember crying at like 15 years old because I wanted to please this man. I wanted to be like this man. And so I tell you that because that is how the fear of God works. That's an imperfect picture of the fear of God. We truly, when we're in the presence of God, we are amazed at his wonder and amaze at his glory. And from that, we want to live to please him. We, want, we know that he, being around him, makes us better. It ha- causes us to fight our sin. And so my question this morning is, do you genuinely fear God? Do you believe that God, being around him, makes you better, draws you away from your sin and toward holiness? Do you take your sin seriously? How about your motive? How about the sin beneath the sin? So my question this morning is, what would it look like if Integrity Church genuinely feared God? Imagine the type of community that we would have. Imagine that we wouldn't try to lie or to hide our sin. We would be honest because we would care more about honoring Christ than fearing man. We wouldn't gossip because we wouldn't, we would care too much about how someone else is walking with Christ than trying to tear them down. Our love from one another would increase because we would be able to accept one another and how we really are versus the way that we desperately want to be perceived when we hide our sin. And so my prayer this morning is simply this, that God would teach us how to rightly fear him, that that he would save us from the idolatry of protecting our identity over honoring God. And my question is, why do we try to protect our identity so much when we were bought with a price And that price was Jesus' death on the cross. And so it's my hope this morning that the gospel would bring us to repentance. My hope is that the gospel would cause us to find our motive and fight and war against the sin that is beneath the sin. And that we would be honest with God and that we would be honest with others. God help us. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you all the glory this morning. We thank you for being a God who is holy. And Lord, our holiness only comes from Jesus' perfect righteousness and his sacrificial death on the cross. 
And so, God, I pray, Lord, in light of that truth, that you would cause us to be humble and we would fight the sin, not just the sin that is on the surface, but underneath the sin, the idolatry in our heart, the desire to want glory over you. God, I pray that you would guard us from the enemy as we are tempted to love our idols, we're tempted to glorify ourselves. Would you guard us from that this morning? And Lord, would you help us to walk in true repentance? And Lord, I pray for those in this room who are not believers, that you would soften their heart to the gospel, and they would repent and believe in the good news that you offer us through your son. In Jesus' name, amen.